I love the camaraderie. Uh, I love the fact that we were all going after the same thing. And um, we were explorers out in space, you know, and we pulled it off. And that's that was uh, cool. I mean, in the beginning, we couldn't get needles. We had to make our own needles. And uh, that was kind of fascinating. And we used autoclaves, you know, because you had to sterilize them and reuse them. And oh my, it was, it was interesting. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I was fortunate when I decided to look into a career change in the early mid-90s that practicing acupuncture was a viable option. There was licensure in the state that I lived, two accredited schools, and a new one in the process of obtaining it. Practitioners were making a decent living, and I knew that because I did some informational interviewing before getting too far down the path because I liked having a middle-class income. I had no idea of the interconnected infrastructure of school accreditation, standards testing, and state licensure. I just knew that I could sign up for acupuncture school, work hard, pass an exam, and then pay a fee to the state, and I was good to go as a private practitioner. Until recently, as I've heard of school closures, solid long-term schools at that, as I've seen institutions drop oriental medicine from their name and rebrand as programs of integrative medicine, along with noting the passing of or the illness of people who were luminary pioneers of our trade, I'd not thought much about how our profession seemed to emerge from nowhere in the 70s and 80s, how today... A few short decades later, we are increasingly working in hospitals, on the verge of being included in Medicare, and our methods are coveted and co-opted by other practitioners within the conventional medical world. It's easy to take for granted the structures that give us the opportunity to learn and practice our trade. It was after the conversation with John Scott in episode number 307 that the question of, as a profession... How did we arrive in the present moment started tugging at my attention? My response to that tug was to reach out to some of the people who were there in the early days. What you'll hear over the next five weeks is the beginning of an ongoing series of how acupuncture and East Asian medicine found its way into the mainstream culture here in the West. These are personal stories of people who were at the beginning of our profession before it was a profession. You'll get a glimpse into the tenor of the times, the challenges and the opportunities, and the synchronistic moments that helped to lay the foundation upon which today we build our practices and our livelihoods. One thing I've discovered for sure, those early practitioners were plucky and courageous individuals. They built something out of nothing, and they engaged risks that I would have gone nowhere near. I'm looking forward to sharing their stories, and I hope you'll enjoy these trips in the Wayback Machine as much as I did. There was a time when practitioners were arrested for practicing acupuncture. They expected that would happen. It was part of the row you hoed back in the early days. There was a time people studied acupuncture without any reassurance they'd make a living from it. I don't know if they were courageous or crazy. There was a moment of time in the late 70s when acupuncture seemed to spontaneously arise into the awareness of mainstream American culture. Small groups on the East and West Coasts started fooling around with it. 
what started as a spark turned into small flames. And then those flames began to combine together as a new profession was forged. In this conversation with John Meyerson, we reflect on the early days of acupuncture education and licensing, the challenges and opportunities that arose in the late 70s and early 80s, and how in a short time, a profession did indeed come into being. Listen into this conversation for a moment in our collective history that laid the groundwork for the foundation that we stand on today. All of this in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love 
was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hi, I'm Tracy Stewart, and today I was going to start by explaining what Korean Sasang Constitutional Medicine is. But I think the really important question isn't so much what it is, but rather why use it. For me, there are three reasons why I practice Sasang Medicine, and the first one is simply that I agree with Sun Zimiao and Hippocrates. Food first. You know, you can do more elaborate things once you've tried diet. And there's lots of reasons for that. We already know that people who eat well have better outcomes. And we know that the condition of the constitution, when we examine somebody, we look at what, what is the condition of this person's constitution because it's going to affect treatment outcomes. And we know that it affects overall health and longevity and prevention. So it's really important. We also know that people vary a lot in constitution, a lot. In the balance of their organs, what's strong and what's weak. And not everyone has inherently strong constitutions. We tend to think that, but, you know, those of us who are in clinical practice know that there are some people that just don't have really strong constitutions, and they need extra support from us. People need to nourish what is weak in them, and they need to not feed what is too strong, because organs that are too strong and organs that are too weak have symptoms. If you have too strong an immune system, you often have autoimmune disease. So it's important for things to be balanced, and it's important to balance out your constitution, and you can do it with diet. Eating all five tastes as is often recommended, will balance out your plate. It will not balance out your constitution because you do not have all five elements equally. Let me give just some examples of people who have somewhat unique constitutions and not completely uncommon. The first one is someone where their liver energy is half the energy of their organs. So the other four organs total energy equals the liver energy. So this makes them really very imbalanced. And they think they're eating a healthy diet. You know, they eat lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, and they only use olive oil and avocado oil, which are both liver building. 
And they eat grapes and avocados and olives and vinegars and, you know, because those are all really healthy foods, but they all build the liver and it's not right for this person. So what, what happens often in this case, and I have several examples, is that they get some kind of symptoms related to this overactive liver energy, like maybe hormonal imbalances, especially sexual hormonal imbalances. And, you know, you straighten those things out and they're better for a while. And they go back to eating their perfectly healthy diet and they get some other symptoms. And this goes on for a while where things get come back, not in the same exact form, but usually a little worse and usually a little harder to treat and often deeper in the organ to the point where some people have even had um, organ damage from feeding an overly strong organ. Or someone who's not so imbalanced, but is simply hot. They have a hot stomach, a so young person. And they're eating the healthiest diet imaginable for 70% of the population. Unfortunately, they're not in that 70%. 70% of the population needs warming foods. So they get sick from eating just things like, you know, chicken and garlic and onions and peppers and cinnamon and any kind of sugar and, you know. And sometimes these people get really extreme reactions, like they'll end up with gastric pain and go to the hospital because they think they must have some kind of intestinal block or something. And they can't find anything wrong with them. They don't know what's going on. Sometimes people will go on elimination diets who have this going on because they recognize it's something they're eating, but they can't figure out what. And I had somebody once who was so frustrated because she kept saying, I'm only eating three things and they're the blandest things and my stomach is still just burning and gird and everything. And I said, exactly, what are you eating? She said, the three blandest things you can imagine. I said, what? And she said, chicken, potatoes, and bananas. And I said, okay, go home and eat melons, rice, and pork. And two days later, she called me up and she said, I cannot believe this. My stomach is calm. It doesn't hurt. Everything is fine. And I said, well, that's good because you can eat a lot more than those three foods. You just can't eat foods that warm your stomach. So those, that's reason number one, food and your constitution. Reason number two about constitution has to do with how we conduct medical research. In my previous life, I worked in medical research at UCSF, and I was a project manager at Genentech. So I have kind of a bit of experience with running clinical trials. And one of the things to know about clinical trials is they're just statistical experiments. We're looking for a percentage of people who've got a positive response to something that we're testing. And how many people depends on, first of all, what the disease is. I mean, if you're trying to treat cancer, you're happy with not a very high percentage because, you know, these people are going to die. And if only, you know, 20% of the people get improvement, that's, that's pretty good. But in other things, you want a higher number. So it's, it's a fairly subjective number. And also the number of people in the trials that you need to, to test to make sure that you have enough people to be able to say something about the outcome. 
And this number is a statistical number, the n value, and it's the number of people in the trial who are as alike as you can get them, homogeneous. So you write up the trial so it has inclusion, exclusion criteria. So for instance, the trial could be in middle-aged men who've had heart attacks. And you don't do any women, because you can't have all the variables. And so you make them as much the same as you can. And the results come in, the data comes in, and guess what? The data proves that the people in the trial are not all the same. Because you have all these different outcomes. You have side effects in one person and not in another. Some people have no benefit. Some people get a whole lot better. But the real problem comes down to when you apply this. If enough people have a, a good outcome and the bad stuff isn't too bad, you prescribe it for everybody. Yet the data doesn't support doing this. We know it didn't work for everybody. We absolutely know this. And this is, these are the two things that always show up every clinical trial. They've been proved over and over and over again. Number one, the mind has an effect on the body. It took us years to get that, and we're still not utilizing it as much as we can. And number two, the data proves the premise that the group is homogeneous is wrong. So the premise for clinical trials is not correct. The people in the trial are not all the same. Now, in Korea, where they practice sasang, it's the most common form of medicine in Korea, clinical trials are, are conducted putting subjects in their constitutional groups to see if there are correlations between outcomes and constitution. They typically find them. They have also done lots of studies showing correlations between constitutions and certain genetic markers. So this is really valuable. So if you know that this constitution has a bad reaction to this drug, then you don't prescribe it to people who are of that constitution, which is very helpful. Now, it's hard to get a hold of the clinical data from Korea, but the NIH is starting to publish a lot of these studies and especially the studies on the genetic markers. So I think this is going to start changing Western medicine. We can start having more and more personalized medicine, which people are touting that we have, but not quite yet. But this will make a big difference if we can do constitutional clinical trials. But the third reason, the third reason is my passion. This is why I'm really, really doing it. I've been practicing prescribing diets for people for over 20 years. And almost every person, every single person who follows their constitutional diet has improvements in their health. Yeah, almost every person. Even when the improvements may not be cures, like you have somebody who's got stage four cancer again after being in remission for a while and Western medicine's given up on them and you put them on a diet. Well, you know, do I expect it, them to become cured? No, but they can be healed. They can tell you things like, I'm sleeping better. My stomach is more settled. I feel like I can spend quality time with my family. This is huge. I will be passionate about this medicine and how it helps people forever. So I want to make an offer. You can see a lot more about Korean sasang medicine on my website. I you know, write some summaries about what it is and why I do what I do. And then my website is chibalance.net. That's qibalance.net. And you can go there and sign up for my diagnosis mentorship program, which is just starting now. In, on August 5th.
But if you're not ready, because you don't feel like you have enough experience with satsang, get some experience with satsang. Go on my website, go to the order page, and get your dietary analysis done and try the diet. Try it for a couple of months, see how it is for you. Or if you have some sick, this is how I started long before I did it. I took my patients and I sent them to get the diet done and it changed how they responded to treatment. They just got better so much faster. And some of them just stopped seeing me because they could cure themselves with diet alone. So if you want to know more about it, check out my website, chibalance.net, or you can visit this episode's show notes for more information. This is Tracy Stewart. Thank you very much. John Meyerson, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. I am delighted to have you. We are kicking off a little series here. I'm calling it the history of uh, Chinese medicine in the West. And it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it's a small thing. History of Chinese medicine in the West is huge. But I'm particularly curious and particularly interested about the moment in time when Chinese medicine started to go from the uh, Asian culture I mean, picked up and used more in the uh, mainstream culture. And uh, you were around for that. You were around in that moment in time. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, so acupuncture was not legal in, the, in America. And then in 19, I think it was 72, uh, Nixon went to China. It was a big deal. And that reporter, I can't remember his name, Resident maybe. Rustin. Yeah. Right, he had the operation in China with acupuncture anesthesia, and that sort of all of a sudden opened up everybody's interest into it. And then I would say different states had, you know, sort of different laws, but most states uh, that I remember anyway, you couldn't practice unless you were under the supervision of a physician, and that's how they sort of got around it. And since I'm from Massachusetts, that's what I'm most familiar with, and that's, uh, that's what happened. And that's sort of how it started. And then I would say the key to the whole thing was having schools because there were schools in Europe. We're talking for Westerners now. There were schools in Europe, especially England. And um, there also were uh, schools in Taiwan that Americans could go to as well. In Taiwan? Uh, a lot of people studied in Taiwan because you couldn't get into China. It was, uh, I don't know how many years after that uh, that that happened. And then once that happened, then you got a lot of uh, Asians who wanted to immigrate to America, who um, were either MDs in China or MDs and acupuncturists or just acupuncturists and herbalists or whatever, and started to trickle in. But uh, yeah, definitely I would say Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau, uh, America's trained there. One of the first examples I know would be uh, Dan Bensky and uh, Ted Kapchuk both uh, studied in Macau. And there were definitely a bunch of people who came from our first classes, uh, New England School of Acupuncture classes, that studied in Taiwan. Now, now you were involved with that. How did you get interested in acupuncture? What was going on for you where acupuncture comes into your attention? Uh, so it's interesting. I, um, I started studying uh, martial arts, especially Chinese martial arts, uh, when I was 15. And um, I'm still at it today. Uh, I'm 71. And um, so I've been around Chinese most of my life. 
And, um, you know, in college, after college, I was supposed to go to medical school. And um, so, you know, you apply, you get in. And then I had to decide, well, does I really want to go to medical school? There was no no schools of Chinese medicine in America at that time. Uh, we're talking 74, 75. And um, so I worked at the, as an orderly in the OR and ER in a local hospital, in a local teaching hospital, which was fascinating to me. But I realized I really did not want to uh, work at a hospital. That was a problem for me. So I delayed my acceptances. And um, by pure chance, this is how the world works, my wife and I were looking through the Boston Globe. She was looking at the want ads. She was looking for a, a part-time job. And she ran across this immigration notice that said, uh, wanted uh, acupuncturist with, you know, 40 years of experience and all this kind of these requirements. And I go, wow, that's kind of cool. So the Monday morning I called up and said, well, when you find that guy, let me know. I'd like to meet him. And the guy goes, sure, you can come down today and meet him. And that's how I met Dr. So. <laughs> James Tindiao So. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And uh, he and I hit it off, you know. And uh, so I was in the first class of the first school in the country. The New England School of Acupuncture was founded as the Acupuncture Foundation of New England, DBA, New England School of Acupuncture in 1975. Uh, it was founded by Dr. So, uh, Steve Breaker, and uh, Arnie Fryman. And what what do you think? What do you think induced them to do that? Why start a school of acupuncture? What were they thinking? What were the problems that they were trying to solve? You know, Asian studies pretty big. I mean, a guy by the name of Steve Rosenberg Rosenblatt. Can't remember his last name. Steve He's from L.A. and he went over to Hong Kong. And uh, somehow met up with Dr. So and brought him to L.A. And whatever gig they had in L.A. didn't seem to work out, so they came to Boston. And, um, you know, I think they came to Boston mainly. It was a pretty big hotbed of things that were alternative at the time. Uh, not that L.A. wasn't, but um, especially with the Cushy Institute being here. And uh, there just seemed to be a lot of alternative kinds of things. And uh, that's when they, they started. Yeah, I don't know. For myself, I, I think I was just interested in Chinese things. And uh, I knew a lot of the gung fu teachers who did, you know, massage or quina or, you know, herbs, uh, stuff like that. And I found it fascinating from the beginning. And I think I, the philosophy, you know, comes from Taoism. And uh, I was always attracted to Taoist things. It just seemed to make sense to me, Taoist and, and Buddhist ways. And I think, you know, I have nothing against Western medicine. I work with doctors all the time. And, and, um, you thought about doing it. You were headed down that path. Absolutely. Uh, I just, I don't know. It just wasn't for me, really. I didn't like the, being in a hospital. I didn't like the hierarchical form of it. I, um, it just didn't all make sense to me, whereas Taoist principles make sense to me very well. And so that's what attracted me to the whole thing. And then, you know, Dr. So and I hit it off. So it was kind of like I was his apprentice for a number of years, and he wanted to start a school, so they started a school, he and the other two guys. And I was in the first class, and uh, so were they, because everybody was. So it was a bootstrap operation, wasn't it? Right. And after the first year, uh, Arnie left, 
And I joined Steve in the administration, and he and I ran the school. And uh, then he went off to medical school, and I decided not to go to medical school and stay at the school, at the New England School of Acupuncture. And so that's where it went. Wow. And that was in 71, did you say? Well, that, so it was founded in 75. Yeah, the first class graduated in 77. What kind of people were drawn to it back then? What were they seeing? What were they after? I think they all really wanted to help people. They really wanted to help people heal. It was very idealistic, I would say, especially in the beginning. A lot of them were interested in going to medical school. A lot of them were interested in going to chiropractic school. Yeah, things like that. I, I know that uh, a couple of people went to England and studied in what's called the Van Buren School. I don't know if it's still there or not. And after, you know, in the beginning, it was just Dr. So, and then we brought in other teachers. Uh, so one was the cabinet of Bob Banover, who studied in England. And then Ted Kapchuk came along, who studied in Macau. And um, so it started to grow that way. And I would say by the late 70s, uh, we had a few Chinese on our faculty from China who had emigrated here because they could get out and um, spoke English. That was the key. In the beginning, we, we had no textbooks, so people had to translate as they went along. And um, it was interesting. How was Dr. So's English? Fascinating. I'll tell you stories about Dr. So. Dr. So is a fascinating man. He was uh, in a peasant uh, family who ran a, a vaud, traveling vaudeville show in rural southern China. Seriously. <laughs> I'm just, I, I've got the image in my mind, and it's, um, there's something really delightful about it. He's a showman, huh? He was a showman, and he uh, spoke. Uh, I don't think he could read or write Chinese. He could read some Chinese, but how much? He spoke Cantonese, Hakka, and Twai Sam, probably the southern dialects. Um, and somehow he got uh, connected to these missionaries, Protestant missionaries, Christian missionaries, who brought him to Hong Kong. And they taught him how to read and write English. So he couldn't necessarily do much with Chinese, but he could read and write English. <laughs> and he uh, learned how, it was basically a barefoot doctor. You know, he was, uh, that's basically the program that he took. And he would travel around southern China, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, and, you know, he would treat people. You know, he wasn't like uh, Ted, who knew all the theory and the, the, the beautiful background and all this. He was not a scholar. He was a practitioner. And he could help people heal. And I think that's what, what attracted everybody to him. Plus, being a showman, he used to, he could tap dance and he played these funny, funky instruments. It was, it was a riot. Yeah. Yeah, he sounds like a riot. Did he actually go through the barefoot doctor training that they offered on the mainland, or did he pick it up through some other some other means? Yeah, he picked it up. With, I can't remember the name of his teacher, but there was some barefoot doctor teacher, and uh, that's how he learned. Um, he didn't know anything about herbs much. Uh, he knew a few formulas, but uh, he, was, he was an acupuncturist. But, you know, he wasn't afraid to... Well, he was not afraid to experiment with things. He... he you know, he went right at it, and especially for pain, he was brilliant with pain. And, um, you know, after a few years of being his apprentice, you know, I, I knew what he was going to do before he knew what he was going to do, you know. At pain, did he have some some particular ways that he looked at it? Was there a way that he would needle, a way that he'd diagnose or think about it? 
he was very, very simple. He, he didn't use, he didn't leave needles in. He would do it, get a stimulus, pull it back out, go to another point. Very direct, really could hit a stimulus. I mean, you could feel it. You know, he was not, shall we say, delicate. <laughs> and um, I don't know. He just, uh, he, he was, he was, he just had a connection with people. And uh, somehow, he was good at it. So you've got to school in 1975. My suspicion is it was not legal to practice acupuncture at that point in Massachusetts, was it? Uh, that's correct. In Massachusetts, not till 77, when the attorney general decided that it was a practice of medicine and we had to practice under the supervision of uh, doctors. So you started school before there's even a glimmer of a thing called a profession. Co uh, correct. But we knew that was going to happen. I mean, because that's how it was across the country. And um, in 1987, it became legal but without the doctor thing. And, uh, but, you know, it was the Massachusetts, Maryland, because of the TAI school, Florida, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, you know, Montana, uh, Colorado. I mean, all the Western states were were in on it, but the uh, school in Chicago too. So the way that it would would go, people would start to study maybe before the, it was legal to practice, but as uh, as things went along, legislatures would change. Were, were were there associations or groups or something that were agitating for the change? So here's the deal. I I think that the reason acupuncture was so successful so quickly is because. You know, we, we did find, found these schools uh, across the country. There were, I don't know how many original ones there were, six, eight, something like that. And the schools out west, especially California, were giving out doctoral degrees. And California was famous for those mail-in doctoral degrees. And uh, the schools in the east couldn't do that. Doesn't that sound a little suspicious? Mail-in doctoral degree? <laughs> oh, Definitely. Oh, yeah. But the schools in the East, of course, couldn't do that at all. We were in Massachusetts, we were licensed as a trade school. In order to get a degree, you had to be, Board of Regents had to grant you that privilege. And none of us, any of the schools across the country, were at that stage to, to do that. And um, so we realized, uh, especially here in the East, that if we didn't all band together, we weren't going to go anywhere. You know, the medical profession would cut our head off, and that's that. And um, so we decided we weren't going to be like the chiropractic profession who fought all the time with everybody. We decided that we were going to figure out a way to get in. And um, so the schools decided to get together. We met in Chicago. We met Chicago because it was in the middle of the country. There was a school there. can't remember the name of it. Midwest Acupuncture School, something like that. Brian Manueli and Paul Zbiewski. <laughs> I remember the names. Anyway, and uh, they hosted a meeting. I think it was February 79, 78, 79. And um, then we had another one about a, a few months later. And what we decided was that we needed to um, get together as organizations and work together. And so the California schools stopped issuing degrees and until we could all make them real degrees. And we formed in February, what's called the Council of Schools. 
Catholic schools and colleges, something like that. And um, that was the start. And then a year later, in 80 or 81, I forget which, we all met in uh, California, in San Diego, at that nice hotel, which I can't remember, that uh, beautiful wooden hotel there on the island. It was beautiful. Anyway, we decided to form a, uh, a national organization, which was called the American Association of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine. And then within that, we decided to form a uh, accreditation commission and uh, the testing commission. And uh, I got to be the head of the accreditation commission and uh, another Bostonian, um, Jim McCormick, did the testing. And we got groups from all over the country and uh, we all learned on the fly what we're supposed to do here. I went right to the accreditation commission, the New England Accreditation Commission for Schools and Colleges, and said, uh, let me see your bylaws. What, what are we doing here? How are we supposed to do this? And um, that's how we did it. And uh, eventually we got to uh, a place where um, the Accreditation Commission was acknowledged and approved by the Department of Education in Washington. So that was the first big step. Now, was that the what became the NCCROM? No, that's the testing group. And they, um, National Certification Council of whatever, Acupuncture and Royal Medicine, and they did the same thing. They went to uh, Princeton Testing Services, and they um, you know, learned how to make a test. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Clearly. Now, the, the accreditation, though, this was to accredit the schools so that they could hand out viable degrees. Okay, so it depends on the state that you're in. Okay, so, so for example, in Massachusetts, that's the first step. You know, without that, nothing happens. And then you have to go to the Board of Regents in Massachusetts and whatever the board is called in whatever state, and they will grant you permission. But usually it's based on the accreditation. And um, so we started handing out master's degrees. Uh, my dream and some of our dreams in the early 80s were doctorates. That was my goal, was to uh, to get to the place where the schools could handle out, hand out doctorates. And that's finally starting to happen. So that's that was my vision in the middle 70s there, and it's great to see that it's happening. The other thing we founded in, uh, what date was that? I can't remember, somewhere around the early 90s maybe, we had uh, a group called, uh, it was the State Licensing Boards got together in a group. I don't think it's still there. But the reason for that, what worked really well was to see if we could get all the states on the same page for a licensure instead of having wildly different things, uh, we wanted to see if we get the same things for every state. In the end, we managed to do that. And um, everybody worked hard together to get that. And now the way we did it was we set up tests for different areas. So one would be Chinese medicine, one would be herbs, one would be Western medicine, one would be massage or whatever. You know, we had, I think it was five different tests. And different states would require different tests. Uh, and that's how it became a national test. And California was probably the the last one to do that. Right. So that's where the NCCAOM... They were in charge of the test, and they worked with us to develop a test so that everybody could do it. So they were a separate organization. Yes. It's a word. I've been in this, I've been in this 
you know, profession for 25 years now. And there, there's so many parts of it I actually don't really understand because by the time I got here in the mid-90s, we already had a profession, right? I could just take nice advantage of it, not think too much about how all those structures came into being. So the NCCAM-OM is a separate entity. Their thing is testing. They're all about testing. And so you, these other groups that you're working with, you know, on accreditation and that sort of thing, you all are working cooperatively and you're bringing the NCCAOM in to do the testing. Um, I would say that they're all separate. And, you know, nowadays the Accreditation Commission is now two ways. There's the one that we did, which is professional. And there's, there's now, of course, the regional accreditation commissions that accredit all colleges and universities across the country. And uh, once you can get uh, aligned with with the big boys, then then the federal money comes in and and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that's what we needed for the doctoral degree. But so the NCCOM, for example, they're still around, and what they do is they they do the testing. And so in order to do the testing, they I think it's once or twice a year convene a group of acupuncturists who come usually from colleges the teachers and they write exam questions so they're always getting new questions and then the the questions i do believe are picked randomly for each test and that's how they keep it up to date and the accreditation commission is still there and you know they if you have a new school that's what you do you have to you have to go through the whole accreditation process and it was, it was weird so for new england there were no accreditation process we had we were a trade school so until the accreditation commission happened we had no no chance of uh, getting licensed by the Board of Regents. So once that happened, then we were now out of the Department of Education, the trade schools, and into the Board of Regents with the Accreditation Commission. It's complicated. It, it is complicated. There's a lot of politics behind this and a lot of uh, infrastructure. And a lot of hard work. You know, there were a lot of people who put a lot of time into this. And um, But on the other hand, we now have a profession, and I'm very happy to see because I knew this was going to happen, um, that in order for us to really be at doctoral level institutions, we were going to have to either really get a lot of money together by ourselves, each school, which is hard to do, or become a part of a bigger university. So for example, uh, New England School of Acupuncture is now part of Mass College of Professional Pharmacy and Health Sciences. So it's one of the things that they do. You know, there's an, another bunch of other medical schools who now have acquired that. And eventually all the privately owned schools will be, be gone because they won't be able to get doctoral degrees because they uh, don't have the facilities to do that. Uh, and the major facility is going to be being able to work in a hospital uh, with doctors. And that's the key. So uh, that is happening. And it's great for me to see. Uh, I have nothing to do with it anymore. I um, retired from all the politics in 04 after, uh, you know, enough. It's a lot. That's a long slog. That's a long slog. And I personally said to the people that I knew that it was time for a new generation to take over. And uh, now it's probably the third generation that's in there. And that's great because uh, that's, that's what has to happen. When you were first starting out, you know, and you had this vision of, of, of a doctoral program, for example, Back then, what did that look like to you? 
I would say pretty much what it is today. Uh, I I knew that we had to become part of, of medical schools uh, at some some level somehow uh, because they had the money, they had the research, and they had the access to hospitals. So in order to get into the hospitals, you, I mean, they weren't going to let you in otherwise. And, uh, you know, the West Coast led on that one, sure. And that's great to see. I mean, that's that's the key. Otherwise, what's going to happen is we'll just get subsumed. You know, the MDs will take us over, the chiropractors will take us over, and now you notice the PTs are trying to take us over. And um, so it's, it's important to have our own thing, our own curriculum, our own degrees, uh, and our own ways of working in hospitals, as well as obviously outside hospitals. Everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvellous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Do you think that working inside of hospitals and within the system like this will keep acupuncture in the hands of acupuncturists? Or, I mean working inside that system. I hope it does. I hope if we stay together, it will. I know that if not, they'll just take us over. But if we can show them that we have a, a four-year curriculum that's a special curriculum, it's like that in China, and it's not just sticking needles in people, it's a lot more than that, then they have to start looking at us because the accreditation commissions will look at it. And they'll say, oh, no, no, that, it, well, you, that's not acupuncture. You know, so the PTs call it dry needling technique. Yes, very clever rebranding. Yeah, very clever, which pisses me off to no end, but that's the way it is. But it's not acupuncture, and um, they can't call it acupuncture. And um, they don't have the training that we have. And I think that's the key, is if you can show that you're at a doctoral level, uh, then you will be accepted uh, and so then doctors will start referring to you, and it becomes a specialty. And uh, that's how I think it's going to be. I'm hoping anyway. I think it will because we have enough documentation and we have enough textbooks and we have enough you know, research to, to do all that. And we have that national exam, which is really important because it shows that we have the material, the background, and the theory to back up what we're talking about. And I don't know about everybody else, but Massachusetts now, I mean, I don't know how many thousand acupuncturists there are, but there's a lot. And uh, they're, they're all over the place. And uh, they wouldn't be all over the place if they weren't successful with being all over the place. 
Well, there's a lot of talk in our profession, too, about the uh, attrition rate of people who are not practicing after five years. There's also that. that that's correct. And I think the issue with that is that if everybody's going to train to be in small little private practices, then they're going to have to learn how to go out and get patients. Uh, whereas they start working with doctors, they will get patients. So I think it has to be both ways. I'd like to see small practitioners, but I also like to see people working with doctors because, you know. So there could be two professional streams in a sense. Uh, there could be. I don't, I don't know how it's going to evolve. I personally have never been, uh, we get into the thing of insurance. And, you know, I have never accepted insurance. I never do accept insurance because, you know, insurance then runs you. And uh, all my physician friends want to get out because, you know, they, they basically become technicians and they're run by insurance companies. And, um, you know, so I, I, you know, I'm not really into that, to tell you the truth. On the other hand, if you don't have insurance, you will lose a huge number of patients because that's the way it is. People expect to be have insurance paid for their treatments. So I, I like it the way it is now. I like the way that you can pick and choose. I have a doctorate in psychology, I, I, um, and I'm a licensed psychologist as well. Um, I, and so, you know, in psychology, very few private practice, practices take insurance because they won't reimburse us to the level that we want. But I think uh, acupuncture will be different because it's a more, it, it's like PTs. You know, they get paid by insurance. Um, and as long as you document what it is you do, there will be protocols, but it's a fine line. And uh, I can see not accepting insurance too, which I don't, obviously. Yeah, I understand. I live in a state where they don't really have insurance for acupuncturists. So, you know, it, that hasn't been an issue. People will call and they'll ask if I take their insurance and I just tell them that their insurance doesn't take me. And that's the end of that conversation. But I, I couldn't make that argument when I lived in Washington State. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Massachusetts does accept, most of them accept insurance. Sure. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm hearing a couple things here. You know, one is you get the doctorate to become part of this larger medical system because it will give us a kind of uh, viability. But also that medical system, John, it seems like it's run on insurance. It's absolutely run on insurance. Yeah, I, what I was saying, I, I have two ideas about just what you just brought up. I'm not a big insurance fan person. Um, what I do is uh, I adjust my rates for what people can afford. And um, that's how I make it work. And that's great, but that's for me as a small practitioner, that's great. I think that we still need to have insurance because that's going to get the greater number of people in. And then hopefully somewhere along the line, insurance will be streamlined and change that system. It's a toss-up, right? I mean, insurance companies don't tell me how to run my practice because I don't accept their, their money. So uh, on the other hand, there are other insurances that, you know, I, I fill out a form for people and they file. They pay me and the insurance companies pay them. And for sure, for folks who may not want to run a business, who may not have an entrepreneurial bend, working for the insurance company is a way, I mean, there's a steady stream of patience for you. Absolutely. Yep, and the doctors will refer to you if you're a doctor and you take insurance, just like they do. And um, so to me, you have to play the system that works for you, and um, we'll see where it takes us. 
I mean, insurance is going to change somehow, sometime because it's not working. And, um, but I have no idea when or how, and at this stage in my career and my life, I, I don't, I, I don't care anymore. It's like, uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, not your circus, not your monkey now. Yeah, that's it. I hope others can, can take it on. I, I think the key is for our profession, not to appear that we're radical, to appear that, you know, we are trained doctors, just like they are trained doctors. Uh, we have a different way of looking at the body and the world, but that doesn't mean that's bad. And so far, at least here in New England, that I think acupuncture is really, really well accepted and 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 moved into into place like, like that because because of that, you know. And um, now it's like I have a couple of uh, colleagues uh, who they have their doctorates in the oriental medicine. And they work in, like, for example, Mass General Hospital or Mass General Brigham Hospital. Uh, that, that's a big deal. You know, I mean, that those are like the top hospitals in the country, or at least a couple of them. And they're accepted. They're accepted as doctors, and they get paid as doctors. And I think that's pretty that's, that's the way it's going to be that way. It's a long way from 1975. Tell me about it. In 1975, no one had any idea what, what it was. It's kind of like yoga. You know, in 1975, no one knew what yoga was either. And now there's, there's at least eight yoga studios on every corner. They're next to the acupuncture clinic. Exactly. And it's funny, I go a lot of places and I see they are actually next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, oh, that's good. Uh, you know, as long as it works. But, uh... And also, I think we get a lot of patients if we, if, if, you know, you're associated with a doctor and they know you, they'll feed you patients that they have tr having trouble with. I found this to be the case. I, I've had a number of doctors over the years who have sent me the, the people that they couldn't help, which means you get to see some really troublesome cases. Pretty cool. Yeah. And if you can help those people, those docs will send you more. Oh, they will. No question. Yeah, but, but it can be tough because they are not pitching you a softball with those patients. Nope, they're not going to give up any kind of money. Are you kidding me? Would anybody? I mean... No, but it's true. You know, we're compassionate and we want people to get better, but, you know, we still have to have a paycheck. Yeah, that's the way it is, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, I mean, you look at nature. Nature looks out for itself. That's right. No, I, I, I have no, no objection to that one. I think it's, that's correct. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful thing about East Asian medicine is that uh, because we're looking through a whole different set of lenses and filters, we can sometimes see things that can't be seen from a Western perspective, and we have methods to do something about it. And vice versa. Exactly. You know, you're in a car accident. I hope they send you to the emergency room, not to my office. That's right. Let's make sure you're not bleeding in your brain. Yeah, or something. You know, the diagnostically... Western medicine has some cool techniques that they use. It does. Yeah, astonishing, really. John, what do you, I mean, you were, you were in it at such a uh, moment. We didn't even have a profession. We didn't even know if we could have a profession. Right. I mean, you kind of took a risk back then, throwing in with this, because you know, it was not a foregone conclusion that you're going to be able to get schools to band together, that you're going to be able to create programs and have enough people come to it, or that legislatures would license us. No question about it. I agree with you. I don't know why I did, but I did. And um, 
I think it's because uh, one of the reasons is, is, you know, theoretically, I like the way the approach of this is. But the other thing is, in the very beginning, the schools would compete against each other and, and badmouth each other and, and all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, we started to, when we started meeting in Chicago, it was kind of like, hey, you know, why don't we band together and, you know, see if we can bring everybody into the whole process as much as we possibly can. And that's when everybody started talking. And once that happened, uh, I think things just started taking off. So was it that as a group, the schools saw that if they didn't come together, there might not be a school in another five years or there might not be a profession? I totally agree with that. Yep. I'm thinking about that, you know, original 13 colonies. What was that famous? There was, there were so many slogans, uh, hang together or we'll hang separately, something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, it, it was a beautiful thing. And I, I loved working on the national level. Really? I really did. What did you like about it? I love the camaraderie. Uh, I love the fact that we were all going after the same thing and, um, we were explorers out in space, you know? And we pulled it off, <laughs> and and that's that was uh, cool. I mean, in the beginning, we couldn't get needles; we had to make our own needles, and uh, that was kind of fascinating. It uh, and we used autoclaves, you know, because you had to sterilize them and reuse them. And oh my, it was, it was interesting. How did you make your own needles? Uh, well, you know, for example, uh, I happen to live on a horse farm, and and. So I did a lot of horses. A horse farm? Yeah. What are you doing on a horse farm? Uh, I don't know. We have horses. <laughs> you know. Did you grow up on a horse farm? No. My wife's into horses, and um, and uh, I don't know. So here we are. Anyway. You're on a horse farm with your wife, and you're making acupuncture needles. No, not anymore. Now you can get you. No, no, but back then. Uh, well, back then we didn't own the farm. We uh, we just, she just had a horse here. So, and um, yeah, so. Uh, you know, and the horses would get lame or whatever. And, uh, you know, the vets had no idea what acupuncture was. They'd never heard of it. And there was no real regulations or laws on it. So I just treated them myself. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know, horses' skin is really, really tough. I don't, I don't know horses that way. Horses are big animals and they scare me. Yeah, they're big. There's no question about it. Uh, but anyway, like cows or, or whatever, if you want to get a needle in, if you ever watch them get injected, it looks like, it's going to kill them when the needle's so big. So I had to make thicker needles from what we had because you couldn't get them in, uh, at least not in a lot of areas. Uh, and they needed to be longer, too. So you're talking about making needles for horses. Yeah. Did you also make them for the people you treated? I had, but usually we got those from uh, Japan. Okay, so you could get those. They were available. Somewhat. You know, as I said, we had to sterilize and wash our own needles because we couldn't get them like that, and they weren't disposable. And then the, the serin needles came out from Japan with the little tubes and all that kind of stuff, and that was a revolution. Uh, that's all I use today anyway, so <laughs> I don't make my own needles anymore. When you were making your own needles, John, how do you do it? How do you make an acupuncture needle? Not that any of us need to do that right now, but it might be a useful thing to know if supply chain issues happen again. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I went to this place called Vita Needle Corporation, and they, uh, they made needles, like sewing needles and these kind of needles. And the needles came in these long, thin pieces of steel. 
And so I just got the pieces of steel that I wanted, the length, then I cut the needles with a saw. And then from there, you have to hand sharpen each needle on a sharpening, uh, you know, uh, a whetstone. And then for the handle, what you do is you take some copper and you wound it around the top and make a circle on the top, like those old needles used to have. And that was the handle. Wow. Back in the old days. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, Dr. So taught me how to do that. I, I mean, it sounds like a trade school is what you have. <laughs> I mean, learn to make your own needles, learn to learn to do your own treatments. Yeah, well, it's because you where he was, they didn't have needles. So he had to he was on his own, you know, and um he was incredibly inventive. Really, his treatments were inventive, and he was 100% knew what he was doing was correct. And that was great. What did he do when it didn't work? Well, I would say one of his downfalls is that he didn't really look at internal medicine. It was basically barefoot medicine. So he was treating the pain as pain. And I don't remember, he didn't really, he didn't really deal with that. If, if it didn't work, the people would leave. <laughs> I mean, that was that. And he, he would just say that he needed more time but he didn't usually need much time, period. So, especially for injuries, he was really good. Any kind of inflammation, uh, whether it's internal or external, he was really good at that. And you say he didn't really think about internal medicine. He was thinking a different way. Correct. So he was, you know, he's a barefoot doctor, and barefoot doctors are, this is wrong, this is how you treat. This is wrong, this is what you treat. This is wrong, and that's typically on Chinese medicine. So there was no like looking at internal Chinese medicine uh, until uh, Ted came along, Ted Kapser came along, because he could speak and read Chinese. And then, you know, all the schools started bringing in Chinese people who could teach you that. So Dr. So was working off a set of, I was going to say protocols, but I don't know if it's protocols, maybe just a set of simple principles. If it's this, it's that. If it's that, then you do this other thing. Correct. But he wouldn't follow that. Uh, he would follow what he thought was right. And that's why he was so successful. But that's how it was taught. And, um, you know, it's like Chinese herbs too, right? I mean, you know, first you learn the simple, the, the each individual herb, then you learn the groups. And uh, the artistic part of it is to, you know, mix the different herbal groups together to so they support each other. And he was not an herbalist. He did, he did not do any herbs. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Because if you don't do the, that way with herbs, then you're in trouble. So, and, and this is really the beauty for me too of acupuncture, is with some very, in some ways, simple and minimal uh, treatment, you can get a lot of change and get it pretty quickly. Yes, and you can watch it unfold right before your eyes. It's pretty cool. I think a lot of it is you just relax people. And a lot of times, if you can just get them to relax, it, um, yeah. My doctoral uh, dissertation was on the use of acupuncture to induce non-ordinary states of consciousness. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles 
it's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Okay. Can we dig into this for a second? Well, it's basically the same as psychedelics, except there's no no psychedelics. So I've been doing this a long time. Ram Das actually grew up around the corner from where I, I grew up. <laughs> but he was 20 years older than me, so I didn't know. But uh, that's basically what I do, is I bring people to different states of consciousness. And one of the tools that I use is acupuncture. This makes a lot of sense to me. You used the word relax. Maybe relaxing is what helps people. I, I've seen people relax, and often people will ask me, why they're so relaxed, or why they fell asleep. I don't think it's quite sleep either. It is a different state of awareness, a different state of consciousness. I think relaxation is a piece of it, John, but I think there's a lot more going on than just relaxation. Well, I, I think that I noticed this when I was treating people, that those who reach that state, whatever we want to call that state. What do you call it as a practitioner? What do you call it? Well, technically, it's called a non-ordinary state of consciousness. To me, I call it the realms. And uh, whoever can get to those realms heal faster than those who don't. Uh, and as soon as I started noticing that, then I went, hmm. And that's, that's how I, I, I started you know, changing it. Non-ordinary states of consciousness. That sounds a little bit like uh, something Carlos Castaneda would have. Uh... Yep, yeah, same thing. You know, it's, it's, it's very shamanic. I studied with a, a shaman. I was her apprentice. She was from Africa for five years, and uh, I do a lot of shamanic work, and I use acupuncture to help that too. Same thing, same stuff. This is a long way from doctoral in a hospital-type medicine that you're talking about. You're, you're talking to someone who's not in a hospital, not going to be in a hospital, and never wanted to be in a hospital, so I'm out there. I, I agree with you. I, but that doesn't mean I can't look at the whole profession as a whole, you know? Yeah. No, it, 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 in fact, I'm rather impressed and astonished that on one hand, you have this capacity to look at, work with non-ordinary states, realms as you call it, and you've also been able to do this incredible administrative, detailed working with groups, working with governmental organizations, herding cats into something like a profession. Well, I would say for on the Accreditation Commission, for example, I mean, we had great people. You know, we had uh, one lawyer from uh, Washington, D.C., who was uh, associated with you know the Traditional Acupuncture Institute in Maryland. Uh, he was a lawyer, and um, he knew how to get things through the bureaucracy in Washington. And he was just there to help us. 
because he believed in it. Um, and we had a lot of people like that. And with the Federation of, of States, a couple of guys in uh, New Mexico, you know, they were amazing. I mean, they, they just knew how to get it done. And, um, and so I, you can't give me the whole credit on this. I was just there. And, and I was the chairman of it, that's true. Uh, but I'm more organized people, and they brought in the thoughts. It's just, you know, and perhaps because you're, a, you know, a practitioner of this medicine, so you've got the yang aspect and the yin aspect. You've got the ability to work in groups like that, and you've got the ability to work with patients in the way that you do. Yeah, and, um, you know, nowadays, I just work with patients and just certain kinds of patients, and yeah, and I, I don't plan to stop anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> It's satisfying, isn't it? It is me. That's all I can say. You know, it, it's it's sort of who I am. And um, yeah, I mean, you can talk to Michael about it more. He'll he'll tell you how I work. <laughs> he knows me. What is your sense of the challenges of this moment for the people who are maybe more at the beginning of their career or, or just thinking about where the next 20, 30, 40 years goes? You know, because whatever got us to now is probably not going to, it's not going to be the same as what gets us to further down the road. That's for sure. You rose to the challenges of your time. What do you think the challenges are of this moment? I think everybody needs to get doctoral degrees. I can't emphasize that enough. And I emphasize that not because I want you to practice in a certain way, but I want you to be respected in the community. And I want you to be called doctor, and I want it to be just like any other doctoral profession. And... um once that happens, then we're, we're there. You know, we're not going away. And people will respect that. I have found that MDs will definitely respect somebody who has a doctorate in something. And, and we need that because the, you know, new age health kind of scene is full of very well-meaning people, some of them, some of them not so well-meaning people. And it's too much out there. Now, me talking about that is kind of strange because I am as out there as anybody else. On the other hand, I do have the credentials, right? You know, it, it, it carries weight, at least in my opinion, and especially in the East and part of the country, it definitely credentials are really important. And so I think that's, that's important. And then you can pick and choose how you want to go, whether you want to actually work in a hospital or a health clinic or in a clinic with all different kinds of people, I think the opportunities are there. Um, you just have to set it up and see what you're good at doing. You know, as you said, if you're not good at being an entrepreneur, then you need to be in a place that's going to provide you with patience. And uh, if you can't get out there and draw up business, then you got to do something, right? So that that's that's what I see. I see it happening. I like it, and I. I would say to people, not be afraid to be way out there. Whatever it is that you see and that you can do, because we're all so different, to help people, go for it. That's what Dr. So taught me, for sure. He always said, do your best, and results will happen. And that's what I try to do. And I think that that's, uh, that's what I would say to people. All right. Well, John, I appreciate your time today for a little look at where our profession got started and, and some of the challenges of that, mo that moment in the beginning in particular. Well, I hope it was helpful. I, I hope I was somewhat clear. 
Well, I think our history is, you know, like our medicine is very multifaceted. You can look at it from all kinds of different angles. And uh, they all have a story to tell. I totally agree with you. And um, I, I just think that in the beginning, especially, there was a, a, a huge movement that split the community between those who felt that you had to work with the system and those who wanted to create a new system. And I think that you cannot create a new system. You can be part of a system that morphs into something else. But I, I think that if you want to try to be rebels, you'll get eaten alive. Uh, the, the money's not there. And that's why I push for the doctoral things, because then you're a part of the system, but you also can be not part of the system if you choose to be. So I am part of the system, but I don't choose to take insurance. So I'm not part of that system. But I still have the same license and the same credentials and the same everything else. And so I do it my way. But if I didn't want to do that, I could actually still work in the system and take insurance. Could you actually work in that system? Just being who you are and how you are? Yeah. Oh, me right now? No, no, no. Not what I do. No, no way. One more question. Just curious, because I, I think of myself as being in mid-career at this point, which is nice. You know, I've got, I've got a little momentum built up, and it, it's nice to be in mid-career. I've got to practice that kind of motors along. That's a real blessing. Gives you a little breathing room. You're in St. Louis? I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. The show-me state. And, and it's great. People are really open to it. I'm in the middle of the country, and uh, folks are open to it. And if they can get help, they're down with it. They'll keep getting help. And if it doesn't help, they're, you know, they're on to the next thing, which, fair enough, right? But one of the things I've, I've wondered about, I heard you use the term trade school. And I remember when I was first studying back in the mid-'90s, you know, it was an acupuncture school, but I kept thinking to myself, I think this is like a trade school. I think this is like, I wonder if this is like, you know, when people go to learn plumbing or something, you know, they're going to night school and they're, they're learning, you know, this language and, the, you know, these ways of working with things. Is there a place, do you think, that would be like a side stream that would be more like acupuncture as trade? Maybe like a Dr. So kind of character. Maybe you don't know herbs. Maybe you don't have a, a rich, deep, scholarly background, but you have skills, and your skills work. And you don't, maybe you don't work in a hospital. You've got a little clinic, and you're really good at treating certain kinds of things, and you just do that. Maybe, like, I'm going to call it acupuncture as trade. Is there a place for that? Well, it's interesting you bring that up It uh, in... in the 80s in Brooklyn, there was this clinic. I'm not sure if it's still there. I can't remember the name of it. It was uh, run by a doctor. And um, what they did was they brought in acupuncture protocol for uh, drug addicts. Yes, the Lincoln Hospital. There you go, Lincoln Hospital. Thank you. Yes, Lincoln Hospital. Very famous. Very famous. They got great, great success. And all they did was they put needles in the ear. That was it. And what they wanted uh, in Massachusetts, we wouldn't allow it. They wanted to come into Massachusetts. And we said, if you're going to put needles in the ear, you have to be an acupuncturist. And they said, well, 
then you have to pay them as an acupuncturist. And we said, yes, but that's the state of the business right now. You know, so yes, I could see like nurses, doctors and nurses, you know, the same thing. You have the doctoral acupuncturist and you'll have the, the assistant or whatever you want to call it. Yes, I can see that. Uh, but I, I think the important thing that we've done is to establish the top, you know, the, the, the doctors, the professionals. And just like Western medicine, they have nurses now, and now they have physician's assistants. Nurse practitioners, that's right. You know, and, uh, and they have nurse practitioners. They have all different levels underneath them. And that's great. I have no problem with that. Well, I suspect we always are living in some kind of interesting time, huh? Yeah, and this time right now is certainly no exception. <laughs> All right, well, Dr. Meyerson, thanks for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. It was great meeting you. When I went to acupuncture school in the mid-90s, there were schools, accreditation, national standards, and licensure. I had no idea of the underlying structures that gave me the opportunity to make a career change that has brought meaning and purpose to my life for the past 25 years now. Further, I never really looked under the hood, so to speak, of what keeps our profession ticking along. And this conversation with John, it clued me in to how schools, accreditation commissions, standards testing, and licensure are all part of the building blocks that support a profession in mainstream culture. You may or may not like the structures we have. Being on the nonconformist side myself, I've got my issues. But it's also important to remember that when you want to mesh and work with other professions, there are structures that cannot be ignored. And folks like John, who helped to build this foundation, I am deeply indebted to them. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.